Welcome to episode 109 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is our interview with Dr. Stella Kafko, the director of the AAVSO. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the nighttime sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. And today, our special guest, as mentioned, is Dr. Stella Kafka, and she is the director of the American Association of the Variable Star Observers. And... Well, Stella, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the AAVSO? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Um, let's start with myself because it's, um, it has a connection with the AAVSO from early on. Uh, I was born and raised in Athens, Greece, and I got my bachelor's in physics from there. And then I came in the U.S. to get my Ph.D. in astronomy from Indiana University. So I'm a Hoosier girl, uh, proudly wearing the okay. red and white colors of <laughs> Hoosier lab, IU Bloomington. Um, the connection here is that even when I was a graduate student, I was using the AVSO data for my thesis. So in principle, I am a daughter of the AVSO. I, my thesis would have been completely different if it wasn't for that uh, organization for the rich database of individuals who contributed data on all kinds of variable star objects. Uh, so I got to appreciate the value of citizen astronomers, backyard observers, individuals whose passion is to look at the night sky, not only for its beauty, but also for its, uh, its science and wonder what's going on out there and collect data in order to help us figure out what's going on out there from early on in my career. Now, from there, I did a lot of jumps around. I went to Chile at the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory. I was a fellow there and the site director of, the, of a program that was bringing um, US students to Chile uh, for a summer to do some kind of an internship, work with uh, staff on projects. From there, I was at Caltech at the Spitzer Science Center where I was working with uh, satellite data uh, on the same objects that I my, my thesis was on, but a different wavelength. So you get to see the dark side of your favorite stars. Da -da -da -da. I come with sound effects, by the way. So um, That's perfect. So, we, we, we don't have the budget for sound effects. <laughs> yeah, ladies and gentlemen, yes, they paid me to do that. So, <laughs> so from there, um, I went, uh, I got the NASA Astrobiology Institute Fellowship. I was at the Carnegie Institution of Washington. Uh, and from there, I was working at the American Institute of Physics um, when this particular position opened up. And what individuals were looking for in their director was a person who had management experience. Um, and I had that in, in different assignments, but also knew the culture of the organization. As I said, I'm a daughter of the AVSO. So um, for me, it was a great fit to actually have the privilege to lead an organization like this, an organization that provided me with so much and gives something back to the community. Um, I've been the executive director since 2015, so six years now, before coronavirus, BC, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, and from there on, um, it's been uh, an ongoing continues evolution, both of myself and the AVSO and myself within the AVSO. Every single day is different. I'm never bored. And this is something that I really appreciate because I have a very, very short attention span. 
Um, so the AVSO is this amazing organization that was founded 110 years ago. So we have an anniversary this year. Uh, it was founded at the Harvard Observatory and was sort of part of Harvard Observatory early on. Uh, the then director collected a group of amateur astronomers to take data for his projects. Uh, and we'll talk about variable stars later, what on earth that data set was. Um, but at some point, because of critical directions and strategical directions uh, uh, changing at the Harvard Observatory, the AVSO moved out. Um, actually, under the directorship of Marco Emael, who was the first director of the AVSO, uh, and uh, became its own nonprofit scientific and educational organization that connects professional and amateur astronomers to scientific projects. So the mission of the AVSO is to enable anyone, anywhere, to participate in scientific discoveries through variable star astronomy. So from a small group that started in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right now we're an organization that has members and observers um, in 50 different countries all over the world. And it's, it's more of a huge collaboration uh, of both professional and non-professional astronomers. So we have professional astronomers as members uh, who are trying to understand some of the craziest and most dynamic and unpredictable objects in the night sky. Wow, that's uh, that's very interesting. Um, you know, Stella, one of the uh, one of the like great coincidences of this podcast is, uh, or, or sorry, more so your timing on the podcast is Chris and I are constantly brainstorming. You know, what what should we talk about next week? What's mm. what's the topic? And I was recently thinking, you know, what haven't we covered on this podcast? Because we've we've gone across the spectrum of, of various things, whether it's you know objects to look at whether it's the gear that amateurs use. Um, and one thing that really came quickly to my mind is we haven't talked about variable stars. And, you know, part of yeah. that, I think, is our lack of experience. Like both Chris and I, Chris has a little more than me, but, um, you know, other than knowing what a variable star is, I honestly have not spent a lot of time studying them. And, uh, you know, so I think this is you know, fan fascinating. I'm, I, this is one of the most uh, uh, anticipated podcasts for myself just <laughs> to, uh, you know, gain a better understanding and, and uh, learn a little bit more about uh, variable stars. So um, maybe, you know, uh, first question just for, um, you know, all of our listeners, what is a variable star? Hmm. A variable star is a star whose brightness is changing with time, within time scales that we can measure. And that brightness change has nothing to do with the Earth's atmosphere, like turbulence or um, long atmospheric layers or deep atmospheric layers or trees, you know, something like that. It has to do with intrinsic properties of that star. Um, an example, when we're talking about timescales uh, that we can measure, we mean changes that can happen within a night or within a week or within a month, but within a time scale that a, a human can actually capture those changes in brightness and record them. So what we do with variable stars uh, in principle is go outside, take a picture of a star, um, and actually a star is variable with respect to something else that is not variable, right? So there are a lot of stars in the night sky who more or less are the same, no matter how long you look at them. So we take a picture of our variable star, we take a picture of the other stars as well, the, the non-variables, we compare them. And based on that variation change, we, we record the brightness of our variable star every night. And what we see if you record it over time, that it's actually 
uh, increasing or decreasing in, in brightness with time in maybe a periodic manner, like a continuous manner or much more erratic. And this tells us something about the properties of that particular star. Have you ever thought how we derive properties of the fundamental properties in the universe? For example, how do we know how far away stars are from us? Sometimes you have a, a measure stick and, you know, measure tape and you hold one end and I go to Proxima Centauri with the other end and, hey, we are five meters away. Have you ever uh, wondered how do we know how old stars are? They don't come with birth certificates, you know, <laughs> son, how old are you? Yo, send me your, you know, you figure it out. Have, yeah. have you ever wondered how we know how big stars are? Mm -hmm. These All these are derived from variable star properties. So variable stars are everywhere where it comes to um, understanding fundamental properties of the universe. And that's why it's really important to study them. Apart from the fact that, you know, by themselves they are full of surprises. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Um, you know, uh, so Chris and I have a couple of uh, observing buddies uh, that are uh, heavy contributors to the AVSO. Uh, Richard Husiak is one. And then here in Regina, uh, Vance Petru is another. And Vance has given some presentations at our local club about the AAVSO and, and variable star observing. And one of the things, there, there's, there's a number of things that stand out, but one of the things that uh, was really cool to me or, or really intriguing is um, occasionally I, the AAVSO will send out, I don't know, sort of like a, a call to action to, to say, hey, folks, there's a particular variable that we would like mm -hmm. to get like an extended light curve of. So astronomers around the globe will kind of coordinate so that there's like a 24 hour capture of the light curve, mm -hmm. which uh, is just an awesome use of an organization, but also technology, you mm -hmm. know, to, uh, to accomplish that because, um, you know, professional observatories and, and things like that sometimes can't respond as quickly or, or prioritize, you know, a call to action like that, just at the drop of a hat. So um, that, that was a really neat, um, uh, you know, I guess kind of story or, or you know, action that the AAVSO uh, was able to coordinate. I thought that was really good. We can share lots of stories like that. It's not only the fact that because we have observers all over the world, uh, we can observe an object in principle for 24 hours. Uh, it's also the fact that because there are many people involved in a, as a response to a call for observation, when one person's sight uh, is cloudy, somebody else's is clear. So even if you have telescope time within a, a, one of these big ones uh, here on Earth, big telescopes on Earth, then what happens when it's cloudy? What happens when mm -hmm. the technical problems? So at some point we can help professional astronomers do their job. And actually without the AVSO data, this type of business would not have been possible. Exactly because those objects, variable stars, change really quickly, you need some kind of a continuous monitoring of their behavior to at least understand some of the basic properties of what you're looking at. Yeah, try to understand the phenomenon. And it's actually becoming more and more difficult nowadays to get that continuous coverage, that much telescope time from big observatories. It's, uh, you know, there are not many on the planet, um, actually, they're very specialized. They have very specialized equipment. So in principle, if you are to extract a light curve, which is pretty much the recording of a brightness variation of a star with time, we call it light curve. If you are to 
extract the light curve of the star, you really need dedicated telescope time. And this is extremely difficult to, uh, to have right now, especially uh, if you want simultaneous observations with a space mission. So for example, we have a lot of uh, observers who have um, guaranteed telescope time. They have earned telescope time with the Chandra X-ray Observatory, with the Hubble Space Telescope, but back when Spitzer was up with Spitzer. Uh, and they were going to, they're looking at their favorite objects through different wavelengths, different goggles, right? But at the same time, these are variables that they change. What they need is simultaneous observations from the ground to understand these brightness fluctuations, increases, decreases of the favorite object and know what it's doing at the time of the specialized X-ray, Hubble, um, whatever infrared observations. So this is where we come in as a VSO. So that's why I'm describing our observers as a collaboration. It's not only data collection. We are part of somebody's research project um, and we are contributing a very significant and very meaningful component. You know, it's, it's very interesting out of all the sciences that I can think of, astronomy is the only one where individuals without a specialized degree can make significant um, and impactful contributions to science. It's, it's amazing the power of, the collective power of AVSO observers, the passion, the motivation, even the expertise that individuals are bringing in the uh, variable star world, um, exactly because they do not have an astronomy degree, but they bring uh, skills, they bring knowledge, they bring experience from their own professional preparation to the, the field of astronomy, making truly multidisciplinary. It's very rich, it's very satisfying to learn from others. And actually that is what pushes astronomy forward. So hmm. variable stars are really fun to observe because you never know. <laughs> and at the same time, they're very satisfying exactly because you contribute, you leave a legacy of data behind you. And that data is pushing science forward. Um, Yes, we do have a lot of uh, times where we're staying up, uh, worrying what's going to happen next about something, because guess what? Most novel tend to go off on the weekends. Uh, so, for example, <laughs> last weekend, we had three different novel, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, bright stars. And uh, we wanted to alert our community. Uh, nowadays, we're very lucky with social media. If somebody's... Um, aware of an object that requires observations, like now, let's capture something that's really fast, right? It's increasing in brightness and then decreasing really fast. Um, we can send a message through our social media to alert individuals to get on the objects as quickly as possible. But it's more of a, a, a big international party every time something like that happens. So- Very I like cool. that reference, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I have a quick question. Uh, you, you were talking about having observers all over the world and, and the collaboration both between those amateurs and professionals all over the world. How many members does the AABSO have globally? The AABSO has 1,500 members. Um, at the same time, we have about 6,000, 7,000 individuals in our roster. So not everybody who has an observer code and contributes data or follows the AABSO is a member. So... We do oh, okay. appreciate memberships simply because they enable us to do the work we're doing. We're a nonprofit organization, so our income is, is limited. Um, so we would like to encourage mm -hmm. 
you guys, are you members? Why aren't you members? <laughs> We'd like to encourage everyone to join us uh, because they, it's, it really helps. And it actually helps to know that we have people in, in our corner, right? It's that, uh, you know, people appreciate what we're doing and they want to help us do more of that. Um, but at the same time, it's a, it's a group of individuals who are highly, who are specialized, right? They're interested in a very specific type of SARS. Um, the interesting thing with variable star observing is that it's very easy. I mean, people think about, oh my gosh, is there scientific data? It's so difficult to acquire. And the truth is that it's very easy and very forgiving, no matter what kind of equipment you have. Uh, one of my very best friends is a, an astrophotographer. And if you look at her pictures, they are amazing. She's very talented. Um, and she, she was describing to me how she was doing this kind of work. And just hearing of the hours she would spend outside, the effort to align equipment, keep them focused and keep them uh, tracking the very same point of the sky for hours. And then the hours that were mm -hmm. spent on data processing, very sophisticated software, I really strongly admire her for doing that. It requires patience, it requires intellect, and it requires expertise. Variable search term is way, way easier than that, way easier. It's like <laughs> you take a picture, you download it on your software, you get the brightness of the star, and voila, you have a point. Um, and it actually can happen even when uh, it's partly a little bit of clouds in the sky, there's a full moon out there. Of course, you're not looking at the moon. Um, and it's, uh, you're a little bit out of focus, stuff like that. So I'd like to encourage individuals, even those who are doing astrophotography and their passion is to bring the beauty and the complexity of the night sky to everybody else and show us what's, what's out there. Uh, to try variable star astronomy, even as filler targets, whether waiting for the favorite objects to, to get high in the sky, just take a couple of fields that have variable stars. Every point matters. That's really, yeah, that's really interesting, you know, and it really has me thinking just while we're talking here. Mm. Um, I teach an astronomy class, just it's a non-credit for fun class, and I have a lot of people who um, are learning astrophotography. I'm not an astrophotographer, but one of the things that they're often doing as they, as they are working on their equipment to get it working is they're just taking almost like random photos of the night sky as they're making adjustments and, and doing different things. And, and those images just end up being throwaways, but this would be the perfect uh, opportunity for, for individuals just to snap off some, some quick shots as, as their test subjects and then, you know, there you go. You would have some extra data. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that the AVSO does very well is provide educational and training material for individuals who want to learn how to observe with different means. So we have manuals that, you know, from visual observing, you have a pair of binoculars, you can definitely do observations uh, from uh, DSLR, CCD. Uh, spectroscopy, if you want to play with uh, diffraction gratings uh, and or spectrographs, we have manuals for that. We have online courses that are very focused on uh, different aspects of variable star observing and software. We have software, actually our own software for data processing and data analysis. We're giving opportunities to individuals to do their own project if they want to. 
Um, and we even have a journal. If somebody comes up with a, a solid outcome of their own research, uh, their own result, they can actually publish it to our, our uh, journal so that researchers in the future who are working on the same object can use their results to further their own investigation. Um, so if people want to learn how to, um, to take variable star data with their, their gear, they can just use our resources. They're free, they're on our webpage. Uh, and also we have a very active peer mentoring program, which actually helps novices to specific observing techniques to get help from more experienced observers and you know, bounce ideas off of their mentor and kind of improve their technique. That actually worked for me. I, I tried uh, visual observing some years ago with my binoculars. Uh, and I, I had a mentor who actually guided me a little bit on how to do things. So I want people to see the AVSO not only as an organization that enables science, but also as an organization that helps individuals improve their skills. Um, just come to our webpage, avso.org. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's, it's nice to know that those resources are available. Mm -hmm. um, if, if somebody is wanting to do this and uh, they don't have a camera, what what is that process like? What 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 would it, what would a night of variable star observing look like? Uh, either naked eye, binocular, telescope, but basically no camera involved. So no camera means that the detector is your eyes, mm -hmm. right? Um, so the process is that you are you decide what kind of objects are appropriate for your site uh, and for your location. So if you're in a dark site versus if you are in a light polluted site, if you have a location that has a clear horizon or the horizon, you know, it's full of trees or stuff, mm -hmm. um, you can select the objects that are appropriate for you, depending on what kind of binoculars or telescope you have. Uh, and actually we have a targets tool that would allow you to do that, select targets that are visible on your uh, location with a magnitude range that you can uh, approach. And then you got the AVSO uh, web pages and you, you print out a finding chart. Pretty much you need to know where your star is in the night sky. Mm. Also, as, as I said earlier, a star is variable with respect to another one that is not variable. So you need to compare its brightness with stars that are not variable. And the finding chart actually has, uh, is, is pointing out two or three stars that you can make comparison with your star of interest uh, for every field that you have. So you take your, your finding chart, you find your star, you look at its brightness and you look at the brightness of the recommended comparison stars and you pretty much assess um, how close, which is the closest brightness of these comparison stars that represents your little variable. Remember, it's a variable star, right? You don't know what the, br the brightness is. It might be different a week from the first measurement. So with that, you record the brightness of the closest, um, you just write it down in a piece of paper, and you also record the time and the date of your observation, yeah. right? So yeah. here's one point. So you just put it on a graph, and then you can go out two weeks later and do the same thing for your star and just keep recording. Um, mm -hmm. The first time I selected, the first time I did my observations uh, with my binoculars, I selected a long period variable star. I live in Massachusetts, 
most of the time there are clouds out there. So I didn't want something that is changing from night to night because you never know what's going to happen next night, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I took two measurements two weeks apart. And you know something? I'm a professional astronomer. I've used a lot of big telescopes. Big telescopes have digital cameras and they're, you know, looking at faint stuff that are doing crazy things, et cetera, et cetera. Experiencing the brightest, brightness change with my eyes was a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. It was more of, oh my gosh, it's really changing. And I saw it. So <laughs> This, we, we are, we are uh, creatures that live by experiences, right? And one of the things that we have been creating for the last year is to actually sit down right next to our friends and family and have dinner around the table as opposed to Zoom, right? As opposed to some kind of a Skype or, or platform, online platform. Um, we want to experience things. No matter how many documentaries you see on something, um, like a, a, a national park, for example, it's really different when you are in the national park. So no matter how many documentaries or how many graphs you see of a variable star, how many measurements you make from your digital camera, seeing it changing with your own eyes is a completely different experience, it's almost magic. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, if you think what that change represents, right? The a star is changing in size, for example. Just imagine a star that is, is expanding and contracting with time, like a huge star, a big gas ball doing that uh, in space. If, if you think of what that change, uh, the brightness change represents, it's mind blowing. It's amazing. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm glad you mentioned that, Stella, because you know, that for me personally, and I know a number of our listeners, because they've commented on this, that's one of the big draws to just visual astronomy, right? Mm -hmm. Is when you're seeing something with your eye, there's such a different connection and experience with that object. And, um, you know, when you start to think about the distances and the possibilities, you know, between here and there, and, yeah. and, and you know, just uh, again, the like in, in the case of a variable star, like you just said, the expansion and contraction. Um, it's, it's such a humbling experience that it's, it, it's almost hard to put words to it as well, you know, as to how I feel when I'm looking at some of these objects, you almost just have to do it. Yep. Um, but, uh, it, what I'm always fascinated by is, is changes because there's a lot of things that we look at in the night sky that probably won't change during my lifetime or 12 lifetimes after. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I see movement, uh, of solar system objects, you know, that fascinates me. Um, when I'm looking at our own sun through a hydrogen alpha telescope, that fascinates me. Yes. Um, so this variable, uh, variable star, um, you know, variability, the, the changes fascinates me. Um, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the finder charts that are available uh, on the ABSO website, because that's, that was always kind of one of my, um, maybe one of my barriers to, to doing variable star observing was, I don't know how to estimate magnitude, you know, like mm -hmm. I, you know, when I look at it, like I, I really enjoy double star observing. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you which one's brighter, <laughs> you know, that one's always obvious, but I, always, you know, I, I have to look at the star chart or the, the, the guide to tell me that, okay, the, the primary is magnitude six, the companion is magnitude 11. Okay. I observed it, but without that guide, you know, it would be hard for me to, to know those magnitudes. And one thing that I've 
uh, often thought about uh, uh, regarding variable star observing is that would just make me better at magnitude estimates and, and the finder charts available on the site would be ideal for sure. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. Oh, absolutely, Shane. And again, I would like to, um, to emphasize that for those who want to get started and they don't know how to do that, uh, that's why the AVSO is here. We have a very active uh, help desk at headquarters. You can just call and we'll find what's the best way for you to get started. Uh, maybe it's a mentor. Maybe you can take a, a class, an online class. Maybe we can send you a couple of manuals. You can try yourself and then seek help. We provide feedback on data. We do a lot of data quality at headquarters. And, you know, I would like with that to emphasize that anyone can make mistakes when it comes to, uh, to data submissions. There's no correlation, zero, between discrepant data and the experience of the observer. And we can get into that at a different time. But, you know, you want to improve, you want to experience, you want to measure, you want to contribute to science. We are here for you. That's why the AVSO exists. So, you know, try it. Just do mm -hmm. it. Do I sound like a Nike commercial? Just do it. <laughs> the, the new symbol for the ABSO. <laughs> I should call them and get a sponsorship or something. But, you know, it's, it's to boldly go. We're explorers. Let's explore our universe. Because we can't go and take a scoop of the sun and figure out what's, what's in there. We can't exactly use a different measuring tape. Again, you're holding one end. I'm going to a different star and holding the other end. Yeah. And voila, we know how far away we are. Or we can't measure, you know, masses. Mm -hmm. or... We do it through our observations. We do it through our, our eyes, through the data we collect. We're trying to be smart on data analysis and trying to, to uh, analyze and interpret different signals. And we're all putting little pieces of that humongous puzzle that's called the universe. So I think that this is the only way actually to understand that this complex system that is around us. If we all work together and we all contribute together. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, oh, I'm really curious about something. So in, in my, in my regular work, I do, I help with data collection and, mm -hmm. and storage in a scientific study. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear once the observations are made by, by amateurs and professionals all over the world, um, how is that data collected? Mm -hmm. And then how is it stored? And then how is it, how is it utilized and what is it utilized for? So we, we have databases for data storage. Um, and so all the data are being submitted to the AVSO International Database, that is a photometry database. Uh, we also have a database about um, solar data. The sun is a variable star, don't yeah. forget that. <laughs> so we're really monitoring that. We have a very active group of actually uh, solar observers who are monitoring sunspots uh, and they put it in the sunspots database. Uh, we have, we started two new databases not too long ago. Um, one on exoplanet observing. So we are storing exoplanet transits and one on spectroscopy. So we are storing spectra. And uh, with that, we are, we are checking almost every single data point that comes into our databases to make sure that the quality of data is what researchers need in order to do their own work. Uh, and with that, individuals, professional astronomers, educators, researchers all over the world come to the database and download the data. Now, in order to submit, we request for individuals to get an observer code. Uh, it's a unique um, 
code of individuals' initials that actually is connected to the data that everybody's taking. We do okay. that for two reasons. First, uh, we want to give credit to our observers and we want professional astronomers who are using the data to give credit to the observers. And the credit comes uh, in, uh, in terms of acknowledgements, right? In terms mm -hmm. of authorship, co-authorship in manuscripts, scientific manuscripts, in terms of continuing collaboration, in terms of communication. And also we want, this is a way for people to leave a legacy behind. Because you know, you take data right now, you never know when that data will be used mm -hmm. in, in the future. And we want that, that part of our observers to be captured in our databases. Um, can I give you an example? Sure. Of a favorite, favorite astro party that happened last year, uh, right when COVID came, my goodness. Um, remember when Beetlejuice dimmed? Yes. And really yes. dimmed? Yeah. And yep. really, really dimmed. <laughs> yeah, that was last Christmas. Yeah. That was last Christmas. Yeah. The ABSO had 130 years of observations in our database of Beetlejuice. Wow. And the reason why we know that this dimming was special was because nothing like that was recorded in the previous 130 years. So can you imagine the people who took the first 10 years of data and were like, oh, it's a star that is doing something. Yay. <laughs> right. And then 50 years in, oh, it's doing something that is more or less, you know, the two different phenomena are happening in there, more or less sort of um, repeating itself. But they kept observing it because the variables are, you never know what it's going to do. So yeah. last Christmas, no, two Christmas ago. 20, yeah, 2019, Christmas 2019. 2019. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Chris. 2019, when it deemed, people were like, okay, it's going down. But then it kept going down and really kept going down to the yeah. point where from the seventh brightest star in the night sky it became the, the 21st brightest star in the night sky. And then people noticed. And by noticing, I mean, you can look at Orion from a big city and realize that Betelgeuse is way fainter than Rigel. Mm -hmm. You could see it with your own eyes. That's why Betelgeuse was a big deal because people could actually see it. So and, we kept- And it really changed. Like that was amazing because it really changed the look. Like most, most people, especially people who are even uh, casually interested in astronomy mm -hmm. are gonna know what Orion looks like. And it yeah. changed the look of a constellation that's been known for thousands of years by many cultures. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I mean when we're talking about experiencing right? something like that, right? You look at it, you're like, it has changed the look and feel. It has changed the night sky. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, because of AVS observers, actually our observers captured that phenomenon and followed it. Big telescopes on the planet could not observe it. It was too, too bright. Yeah. So uh, because of that, we have a good record of what's happening with Betelgeuse. Um, professional astronomers, in collaboration with our observers, uh, collected data with Hubble Space Telescope, with uh, X-ray observatories. They tried to do radio as well. There was something weird with radio antennas. Uh, and then Betelgeuse recovered. And we're like, okay, that's one off. It will come back to its uh, normal behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? This year, Betelgeuse is way, 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 way narrower in the change. Mm -hmm. So the no, it has not recovered in normal change. It looks like it's not doing anything. Oh, wow. So Very the light is kind of blah. 
<laughs> Can I say that in a podcast? Sure. It's, it's boring. It's not doing much. And you're like, okay, for a star that has been jumping around for 130 years, suddenly it shows a deeming that is mind blowing. Now it's doing absolutely nothing. What's going on in there? Keep you guessing, I guess. <laughs> well, that's research. We we keep working yeah. on that, right? Yeah, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, you know, another thing too that really appeals to me about variable stars is the fact that you can do this from your backyard. Um, mm-hmm. You know, dark skies, prob- you know, enable you to uh, observe different variables. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you can do this uh, just walking out the back door and, you know, from a light polluted uh, area is also, I think, a great thing. Um, that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy double stars is because yeah. I, I can just do that pretty much any night with very little effort. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that that's really appealing to me. Um, now, something something that Vance mentioned during another or one of his presentations um, was that uh, variable star observers seem to have like a like their own list of variable stars that they, you know, they watch over a long period of time. Um, is this, uh, is this common and, and what would, uh, if it is common, what would, uh, like how many stars would a variable star observer sort of keep on their list to, to frequently come back to and, and check over and over and over? Is it common? Maybe. I don't have okay. statistics. Oh, okay. Yeah. We have, we have observers whose interests range really very, um, very much. So we have individuals who have their own observing program. It's what your, your colleague mentioned that, you know, they follow a number of stars. That number can, can range from one, they love following this one star, to a list that is like, d- depending on the equipment, right? There are 50 mm. or 100 stars. Um, and actually, yes, you can do that even if you are a visual observer. We have an observer in uh, Australia Rob Stavains, he has a 16-inch telescope, but no detector. And he's covering about 150 to 200 stars a night. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's it's incredible. He's amazing. He is, in, yeah, he's incredible. Visual observations, right? It's not a machine, wow. but he is a machine. <laughs> <It's invisible. laughs> um, and he's, he has a fantastic data set of wow. stars that he's been submitting at the AVSO database. So when it comes to our observers, pretty much they can do whatever they want. They can actually have a program of their own and follow those stars continuously in a consistent manner. And anecdotal um, stories from them, they think that those stars are their best friends. So they they see it as a a meditation slash way to decompress. They go after a full busy day, they just go outside with their gear and observe the favorable stars and come back in. Um, we have observers who like being involved in projects. So our alerts, uh, our um, uh, targets of interest, of immediate interest, they're, pro- they're observers who just uh, get our alerts and start collaborating with professional astronomers on these particular projects. There are observers who just can't be out all night. And let's mm-hmm. face it, there are lots of people who have this thing that's called a job and a family. And guess what? Yeah. They have to <laughs> actually get <laughs> They should, right? But, you know, they still want to contribute. So one or two hours or even like 20 minutes of being outside and taking data, whatever object is available, is is something that they want. As I mentioned, we have a targets tool that provides um, targets stars that are in need of observations. And you can actually find a star that needs observation anywhere you are. 
um, and just take a couple of, of uh, data points a night. That's great. And we also have a lot of uh, astrophotographers who are looking for filler targets. So they observe a specific type of object before they start, after they end. Um, they just take a couple of, of uh, variable star uh, fields. So mm -hmm. any data is useful. Any program is valuable. When people want to contribute, they should. Uh, any way they want and for any star they want. As I said, we have a, a very loyal group of uh, solar observers. There are people who just don't want to stay up at night, which is perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask, um, talk, talked about a couple of different variable stars here, um, and you talked about making some of your own observations with just mm -hmm. with binoculars. So I have to ask, do you have a favorite variable star? And if so, uh, what is that? Or, or maybe a, fa a favorite type of uh, variable star to observe? Before I started the AVSO, yes, I did. Uh, I studied what we call cataclysmic variables. Nove are some of them. They're in, okay. Their stars are very close together. Um, it's a, there's a white dwarf that is cannibalizing its companion. It's stellar cannibalism in, at its best. And all kinds of, <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of uh, uh, phenomena happening as a result of that. Um, but you know, after I came at the AVSO, we, we get involved in projects. Uh, and some of them actually come from our community itself. My favorite star changes from time to time. So Betelgeuse was one of my favorite stars last year. Uh, recently, one of my favorite stars is um, a long period eclipsing binary that was discovered by the Assassin um, collaboration. Uh, it was a star that was doing nothing for years and then suddenly dropped in brightness and it really dropped in brightness. Uh, and it was a bright star. It's, a, it's an eighth magnitude star. Uh, so we were observing with a group of observers. We had an alert out there. We we're observing it uh, both photometrically and spectroscopically. The challenge with that one is that it was a very, very uh, southern hemisphere star. So okay. it was at uh, minus 56 in declination. So most telescopes could oh, not wow. get it. Mm -hmm. Right. So we we're working a lot with our southern hemisphere observers. And it's a recovered... We didn't even know when it would recover. Just imagine you're observing the eclipsing binary for, for weeks and you're like, okay, are we done yet? Are we there yet? What's happening here? And it's uh, recovering right now from the eclipse. So once we collect the data, um, then we can take a step back and figure out what on earth is eclipsing what and what the nature of that object is. Um, ask me next week. You never know. It's going to be a novel. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll just do something, or maybe one of the bright stars in the sky decides to do something else. Um, that's why I said, you know, my, my life here at the AVSO is never boring. Mm. There's always something going on in there. I guess that's the nature of studying stuff that actually, you know, changes quite rapidly in the nighttime sky. Oh, know? absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, Stella, so what, what I guess maybe at a high level, what causes a star to be variable? I think you mentioned, you know, the, there's expansion, contraction, there's uh, eclipsing variables. Mm -hmm. um, are there other categories? Um, and stellar. Just, I mentioned stellar, stellar yeah. interactions yeah. where two stars are really very close together. So one is literally eating up the outer layers of its companions, stellar cannibals. Uh, they're mergers. Remember gravitational wave uh, progenitors, variable stars. Uh, there's spots like the, the sun has uh, sunspots, 
many stars have star spots that are a result of uh, uh, their, well, uh, their, their fast rotation in magnetic field. Also their disks, protostars, baby stars, when stars are being born, they, they have a nice big gaseous core and they're still absorbing being material from their environment. And that kind of the way that they're eating from their environment is causing all kinds of, of uh, variations in the light curves. There are stars that have uh, exoplanets around them. So as planets are passing in front of the star, stealing a little bit of, the, of its life, this is what we call exoplanet transit. There are lots of reasons why stars, oh, the stars explode, supernovae. Kaboom, yeah, yeah. die, dead, gone. <laughs> uh, it's just, you know, stars tend to be very dramatic in their behaviors throughout their lives. So there are many, many reasons why stars vary. And again, because of those uh, reasons, because of their variability, we understand a little bit about how stars evolve, how stars interact, what the effect of those stars um, is on their environment, uh, how we even form uh, heavy metals, <laughs> how we form carbon in the universe, carbon that actually comes and finds life, uh, how we form uh, solar systems, stellar systems, planetary systems, um, and hopefully eventually we'll figure out how we as humans came to be on, on this little rock around this really boring star, uh, <laughs> living our best life every yeah, day. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, yeah, that's thank you for that. Yeah, that's really, really nice. You know, there's there's some interesting history on the AABSO that I, I did just want to touch on uh, briefly. You mentioned um, one of the founders, I think, at Harvard. Was you, you re Were you referring to uh, William Tyler Alcott? Yes, I was. Uh, he was the one. So he was the founder of the AABSO. Uh, the first recorder was Leon Campbell uh, at Harvard as well. So they were both of... Uh, founders of the first group of ABSORs that were employees of the Harvard Observatory. And then from there, the, the person who took over from Leon Campbell as a recorder and then became a first director was Margaret, Margaret Mile. Mm -hmm. After Margaret Mile was Janet Maddy. Janet Maddy um, actually passed away out of leukemia <laughs> really mm -hmm. suddenly. And one of our own um, staff members took over as an interim director, Elizabeth Wagen, then was Arnie Hendon, and now it's myself. So we've had, a, for a 110-year-old organization, we had just a handful of directors, which is and really interesting. They produced some, I got to say, they, they've produced some very interesting uh, work. Some of them uh, include portions of, of variable star observing, but William Tyler Alcott, uh, and Margaret Mayle in particular, uh, the field book to the stars. And mm -hmm. then Margaret Mayle worked on the um, uh, final publication with Dover on the uh, Web Celestial Handbooks, which uh, I'm a huge fan of. So quite familiar with Margaret Mayle's works. Actually, the cool thing with Margaret Mayle is that um, when she got her master's from Radcliffe, because back then you could not get it. Women were not accepted in Harvard, right? Um, she spent her senior year and then afterwards some uh, internships with uh, Annie J. Cannon. Yeah. The Annie Cannon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, classifying spectra. So actually when Annie Cannon passed away, Margaret Mayo finished the atlas that Annie Cannon was working on. Oh, really? Yep. Wow. That's really Annie Jump Cannon. I think that you Yes. Annie J. Cannon. Yes. <laughs> 
the the kind of yeah yeah very cool very cool so what else we had some other notes in here yeah so i mean there's some interesting variable stars um i've done a little bit like shane mentioned i i've done a few the one that i really get interested in was our corona borealis because it's corona borealis is a constellation between boots and, uh, and Hercules, which are prominent sort of springtime constellations right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Corona Borealis is sort of a lesser known constellation, but it forms this U shape. And uh, kind of just sort of to the, uh, to the east of center of that is this little star R and it will, it will brighten up and then it will go back down again. It really changes that, that whole look of that region of sky. And that's sort of uh, one of the things that, uh, that I became interested in when I, I just observed just a handful of them, but, but they're really interesting to watch over the, over the years and months. The next time you observe it, send us the data. I really should. <laughs> I really should. I mean, if I had, I never had intended to observe it this long and I don't really log it. I just, every time I'm out and I, I like looking at Corona Borealis, there's really not that much else to look at in Corona Borealis, except for our Corona Borealis. So if I had been plotting that all along, I would have had a nice uh, set of curves for uh, uh, the better part of two and a half decades for you. Unfortunately, I didn't do that. It's never too late, Chris. I really should. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you should. You should. I really should. But, but maybe, and you mentioned this when we first started chatting today, mm-hmm. um, you talked about some, some webinars that, uh, that the AAVSO puts on. Uh, on a monthly basis, sounds like there's there's two sets, uh, a how-to series and a research highlight series. Can can you yeah. talk about uh, about those a little bit? They sound really interesting. I think the listeners would love to hear about them. Oh, absolutely! It's uh, they came as a result of COVID, uh, where we were all frustrated not being able to go to star parties and see each other and spend time with each other, or have conferences, and we decided to launch our webinar series, online webinars. Uh, that feature from research results from the AVSO by the the professional astronomers who use the data to uh, all kinds of um, observing sections, what's happening with uh, fun stars, et cetera. These are happening twice a month and you can, it's uh, on Saturdays at two o'clock in the afternoon and you can find information actually on our webpage. Um, So under uh, our community tab, you can see events, and these are webinars there. And the web page is aavso.org? Correct. correct. Okay. It's aavso.org. Um, and also, we have what we call how to hours. This start, uh, started actually at our conference, our meeting, the annual meeting that we have, uh, as uh, uh, presentations that focus on one specific aspect of variable star observing. Like, for example, okay how to do visual observing, right? So you have okay. a pair of binoculars and now what? What are the steps? Um, so these, uh, these are online as well now. And again, focusing on specific aspects of uh, observing. Uh, they happen the first Saturday of every month and it's, they're still at two o'clock Eastern time. Uh, and they, are, uh, they cover subjects from for example, how to do DSLR photometry. Okay, you have your DSLR camera, now what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, last time we talked about how to do spectroscopy on a budget. So you want to do spectra of stars, right? So you might be able to afford the diffraction grading, but you don't want to build the $50,000 observatory. How do you do that? Um, do you have I do something? want to build one, I just can't afford to. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> That's for all of us. <laughs> Yeah. All of us want to have both our Earth-based uh, uh, and space-based observatory. <laughs> we could, um, but you know, the next one 
the first Saturday on, of May, we're going to cover how to do CCD photometry. Okay. Um, okay, you have a CCD camera. You have two options. Either you just purchased a very expensive paperweight or you can actually use it. So let's cover the second part. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you get started with that? And mm -hmm. those give opportunities uh, for experts in the field, which are not professional astronomers necessarily, to discuss different uh, techniques and for our audience to ask questions. As in, you know, so you mentioned blah, I have this kind of equipment. Is it, um, do I have to change something? Or uh, is it appropriate for this technique? Or please clarify A, B, or C. So. Again, they're all free. You can mm -hmm. just register for as many as you want and enjoy them to your heart's content. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to connect. Remember, social distancing is not social isolation. So <laughs> come and be part of our community, join the discussion, ask your questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Um, and uh, yeah, take advantage of these free events mm -hmm. uh, because exactly we will put them together for you for our community, right? To celebrate science, to learn about science and figure out what's cool and exciting, what's coming out of the AVSO databases, um, collaboration, manpower, people power of data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, try it yourself. It, yeah, it's, it's amazing, you know, this, this is one of those places and you were referring to this um, early on as well, where, you know, regular people, if we can call ourselves regular people, um, are able to contribute to science. And, you know, while there's professional astrophysicists that are using this data that's collected by the, these observers all over the world who belong to your organization, to the AVSO, yep. um, that's actually where, you know, regular folks can actually make astrophysical contributions. So, mm -hmm. you know, what, what an amazing organization and a great opportunity for people who who do just consider themselves casual stargazers or amateur astronomers to make a contribution. Absolutely. And it's, uh, again, it's a collaboration. So we're all learning from each other here. Professional astronomers do learn from our observers as well. Uh, and we, we just um, exchange ideas and we exchange expertise. And actually, if you think about it, nowadays, uh, professional astronomy or research is not something that one person does behind closed doors. Uh, it's something that it requires collaboration, international collective activities of people uh, who contribute one piece a person and you put them all together and you have a good result. So the AVSO is part of that collaboration and it's a significant part because we're providing key data. There, there are lots of professional astronomy projects that would not have been possible if it wasn't for the AVSO. If it wasn't for your what you call uh, common people there's no such thing as a common person if it wasn't for <laughs> for that amazing uh group of people who take data mm -hmm. excellent well i'm getting the note from shane that we have maybe time for one one last bit uh, shane did you have a final question to ask uh not a question but maybe i would just turn it over to you stella was there is there anything you wanted to say that maybe we didn't ask you or is there any questions you have for us the one thing i want to really really emphasize is that astronomy is for all it's not for a uh, an elite of people it's not for those who spend 50 years in school astronomy is a, a science field that requires help from everybody 
and is enriched because of health, because of the contributions of everyone. So again, I would like to encourage your, your listeners to join us, try it themselves. And even if they don't want to try it, because, you know, maybe staying up at night and taking measurements of variable stars is not what they want to do. Join the conversation. Come and find out what people are discovering. Support citizen science. Support an organization that's been around for 110 years and is pushing science to boldly go where no one has gone before. It's, uh, it's our way of exploring the sky. It's our way of exploring the universe. Uh, and it's the only way of exploring the universe. So, um, and another thing I want to actually say is that astronomy has no borders. One of the things that I value and appreciate from the AVSO community is that it's a group, uh, a diverse group of individuals from all over the world who respectfully interact and learn together. So if you want to be part of this community, join us. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Um, and I, I think that's a great way to end the podcast, Stella. Thank you so much for, Thank you. for joining us today. This has been maybe my favorite one that we've recorded so far. And I think so, yes. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you've inspired me. Uh, I will be doing some variable star observing and I'll uh, definitely be looking at a membership uh, into the AVSO. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. As I said, it's a privilege to talk to you guys. And I hope sometime in the near future, we get to meet in person. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.